Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmeyer. My guest for episode 122 is Jack Hughes, best known for his five albums in the 80s with Wang Chung, a partnership with Nick Feldman. You're right now hearing his first big hit, Dance Hall Days, from their second album, 1983's Points on the Curve. And if you were conscious in the 80s, I'm sure you know their later singles, Everybody Have Fun Tonight and Let's Go. So that band broke up in 1990 initially. He did some production. He did an album called Strictly Inc. with Tony Banks from Genesis. And as we'll hear, eventually he stumbled into jazz with a band called The Quartet, later Jack Hughes and The Quartet. So they've had five releases, and Wang Chung has reformed for two more albums and an EP. And he's right now celebrating the release of his first actual solo album, the double album called Primitive. We'll be talking about Whitstable Beach from that album, and looking back to Class War and Sex War by Jack Hughes and the Quartet from A Thesis on the Ballad, 2015, and then to Brahms Blues by the Quartet from Illuminated, 2006. We'll conclude by listening to a track from Orchisography, a 2019 album for which some Wang Chung hits were re-recorded with strings. We'll listen to To Live and Die in L.A. from that. For more information, please see jackhughes.com. For more about this podcast, please visit and subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. To support this effort and get my ad-free feed, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Dance Hall Days from Points on the Curve, 1983. We're going to get very quickly to the new stuff, Whitstable Beach, from your actual first official solo album, Primitive. I'm not going to make you sum up that many years of transition between, but give us a little orientation before we play the song in full of where you're at with this current double album. Well, it is a departure in, in many ways. And I guess the transition was really articulated with some work in the progressive rock area, prog area with Tony Banks out of Genesis. But also probably more important was my interest in jazz, particularly the music of Miles Davis in his sort of electric period, you know. And living as I do in Canterbury these days, there's a whole kind of scene that grew up in Canterbury in the, in the 1970s that's still kind of alive in many ways. This mixture of free jazz and rock music. And, and I guess this new double album of mine is informed by this sense of playing, performance, musicianship, and those kind of qualities. Yeah, anything about Whitstable Beach in particular? Well, Whitstable Beach, Whitstable is a little town. It's about five miles north of Canterbury on the coast. It's an interesting lyric, <laughs> Whistable Beach. It's about a sort of um, relationship, really, the dynamics in a relationship. But the metaphor is the sort of tide going in and out and this idea of me drowning on the shore and her breathing in the sea and all these sort of upside-down kind of things that happen in relationships sometimes.
So what time signature are we in? It seems like I'm hearing maybe in three, but if I count to three, then when we get to the chorus, I'm off by one. For me, the, there is no time signature in the front section. It's just this pulse, you know, gang, 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 gang. When I recorded it, I recorded a lot of the songs just with an acoustic guitar and voice to begin with. So I had a click going, but with no sense of 4-4 four, four or anything. And I just sang freely over the top of it and then sort of added drums to that. And then when it does go into time, it's funny, you know, with the band rehearsing it, they're kind of like, oh, we thought it would be like in four, but actually it's in six, four, all of that section. So you're counting in three bar phrases all the time. So that's something I wanted to do, the just mess around with the musical parameters. And, and I think it does express the lyric as well, which is this sense of being very kind of off balance and kind of in this sort of world that's hard to pin down, you know. Yeah, so let's talk about the lyric first. So obviously, a lot of sea imagery, I drown in the shore, you breathe in the sea. So something about incompatibility, something about, but yet you're drowning on the shore. It's not you're drowning in the, mer- it's not a, a simple mermaid's thing of we can't live in the same place. This album began with me writing a whole 12, 13 poems, just trying to sort of express the situation I was in at the time, which was one of sort of loss, sort of personal loss, and, and also a very turbulent time in my private life. The album's not really like about that, in a, in a sense. That's more the catalyst that sort of drove me into sort of thinking about these kind of contradictions that we experience in our lives, you know, and also the shortness of our lives, <laughs> you know, just wanting to express something. And I felt like when I was in this, uh, you know, I was living on my own in Canterbury uh, in this little apartment. Well, I say little apartment, it had a sort of biggish room, but it was just a couple of rooms, you know, and it was right in the middle of the old city. And I just sort of spent a lot of time just working on these songs, you know, sort of writing them on acoustic guitar. And I recalled them pretty quickly and then sort of build them up. And like I say, I was trying to record them without using a clip track and stuff. I mean, I didn't have a plan, but initially I think I thought it would be kind of quite a stripped down sort of acoustic guitar oriented record. But as things progressed, I sort of adapted things, brought in more instruments and after a while started working with some other players here in Canterbury. And and it gradually sort of developed into this kind of quite big (laughs) sound, you know. And Whistable Beach, of course, is very much a sort of rock band thing. And uh, that just sort of evolved in my thinking, you know, even though I was working on the album on my own, I had a very distinct sense of what the drummer should sound like and how he would play and the sort of feels he would do. And I feel like the, the drumming is very consistent across the whole album in terms of the personality of the player. I keep expecting, since you've set up this tension throughout the whole, you know, it even exists through the chorus. Do you consider I Drown on the Shore, You Breathe in the Sea, that that is the chorus, even though that's not the big release point? Or is that just sort of a B section of the verse? I guess the next bit, you know, when uh-huh. the drums are playing is more like the chorus. But then, of course, it doesn't have a chorus lyric. It has a lyric of talking about mermaids and, you know, dying in Berlin and being irritated in Los Angeles and stuff. <laughs> so I'm sort of like using the song structure, but the content is not like regular content, if you know what I mean. Let me play just that transition. This is about two minutes in. We've got waves and waves, and I keep expecting them to actually crash. But they don't. They just slow down a little bit. And then we have something that could be the crash, but it's not coming out of the tension that's brought up. You've already diffused the tension. It's an interesting choice there. Yeah, that was very sort of deliberate, really, not to use a, a kind of usual verse bridge chorus structure. You know, even though there's a sort of an outline of that, it was really to keep a linear narrative thing going. So that the, because the songs are written to poems, you know, the poems begin and go through a story and then they end. They don't have repetitions, you know. 
And uh, a few of the songs on the album follow that. They try and stick with the narrative rather than trying to impose a, a kind of block structure upon it. Who are you singing to or who is the narrator? Is there supposed to be a coherent? Because it's singing about a relationship, but the last yeah. thing you needed was music. So is this like a lover talking to the, the beloved? In a way, yeah. And that line, I just sort of felt, you know, sometimes you know, music's an amazing thing, but it's big and complex and contradictory. And sometimes, you know, in a relationship, the last thing someone needs is a complicated person like me, <laughs> basically. But symbolized by the music, you know, music is, well, there wouldn't be music if we could say exactly what it was. You know, it's Mendelssohn who said, you know, music begins where words end. Yes. But in a serious long term relationship, I found writing a song as something to channel my own emotions, to help myself, that always is nice, cheaper than therapy, as we say. Yeah. But to actually deliver, you know, in place of concrete work to address the relationship problem or something like, you know, it was only a, a year or two into my marriage before the, it was clear that that was not going to be acceptable. Like, music cannot be a tool like that. Yeah, these songs are not the solution, that's for sure. They're <laughs> the expression sort of thing. But in a way, I think creating something beautiful out of your sort of difficulties or whatever it is, you know, the, the journey that you're on, that's a good thing to be doing. And, and as you say, it's a therapy, you know. I did uh, teach songwriting for a few years at the university here in Canterbury. And I found that a lot of the students who came to me with their songs, it was therapy for them. You know, they were expressing emotions that were really deep-seated. And it was very important to them, you know, and getting students to play their songs in a class was sometimes very difficult because they were singing about such personal things to them, you know. But I think that process, you know, I mean, songwriting is a process, I think, uh, and um, that, that, that's a very important part of the process. Is that the Jack Hughes All-Stars 2013 album that I'm seeing on Bandcamp? Is that your students presenting as a group? <laughs> Maybe it is. I'm not sure. I don't understand Bandcamp. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I know once you, I know when I tried with this podcast that to break down somebody else's song and sort of figure out what the rules are, but then when you're actually doing it yourself and it, you know, is coming from a natural place, in some ways that all goes at the window and you've done something, you know, some narrative structure or whatever that doesn't really make any sense or I don't know. Do you find a disconnect between actually having to, to teach to make these explicit and then what you're actually doing yourself? Not so much a disconnect, but they're different bits of my brain, if you like. I mean, one of the things that appealed to me about teaching was it was like, I mean, why do I love Strawberry Fields Forever? I mean, what is it about that song that's incredible? Why do I love Lana Del Rey's video games? Do I mean, so it's like sort of looking into these songs and, and trying to see how they tick and how they work. And if you like back engineering them, and that's an interesting process. But I would always say to the students, do you know I mean, I can't teach you how to write songs. I can't give you theory, as it were, but I can give you a methodology. And the methodology is essentially being open all the time, open to everything that's going on around you and open to the slightest little thing that may just tweak your imagination, as it were. But for me, the creative process, you know, like with Whistable Beach, you know, I didn't sit down and think, oh, I'm going to have this section with no time signature and now I'm going to have this section in 6-4. It didn't even occur to me that the tune was in 6-4 when I was recording it. I just played it. And then when you look at it, writing up the parts for the rehearsals, I was like, God, this is so complicated to write. You know, it's very kind of liquid in a way, in the way that it functions. Yes, the, I think liquid is a great word. You had poems first, but then I can imagine this guitar progression, were the two created independently? Let me ask that, because this, this sounds like something, you know, that just kind of comes out of your hand when you're messing around with the guitar, that not necessarily, did you already have the words in your head at that point when you're doing that? 
Yeah, I remember being in somebody else's house, actually, and just sitting with my guitar, and I came up with that first chord, which is like an F sharp over E, and I came up with a la, da, 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 that, that sort of melody, that, that particular pitch against that particular slightly complex chord, you know, and I recorded it on my iPhone. And then later on, when I was working on the, the lyric, which was sort of evolving, I remember playing that bit of stuff from my iPhone and trying out the lyric. And then I started adapting the lyric to the rhythm that I wanted out of the music, if you see what I mean. And then I think the chorus ideas, the poem came first. But and when I say the chorus, I'm talking about the six with the drums in six chord. The reason why those bits are so kind of, like when you try and learn them, they're completely just talking, as it were, what, what, what I'd written, is because it's led by the poem and not by the music, you know. You nicely have a live performance of this up on your Bandcamp page, so I can sort of see what what the is this. I forget is this two or three guitars in in the actual recording? There's an acoustic and two electrics. In the recording, three. You know, so there's an acoustic guitar, and then I have a, a beautiful uh, fifty-four Strat that's playing one of the parts, and I think a Gretsch White Falcon playing the other. And as far as putting this together, what was your process? You've got all these songs. Are you sending the demos out first? Are you teaching them in the studio? Initially, I sort of did everything myself, and I did a sort of mock-up of the drum part, you know, using some samples, pretty good samples, actually. So the drums always had this quite sort of a robust kind of sound to them, you know. I guess I recorded, I recorded a lot of the album before I got other musicians involved. And so Josh, we spent like three days, by which time I pretty much recorded everything, I think, and he just played the drum parts and sort of developed them in some cases. In other cases, I was much more pernickety that he do exactly that fill and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that writers get into you know. <laughs> and is that the same group that's now doing them live that's in that video or it's absolutely yeah, same okay. guys before we talk about the next song i want to stop for a little sponsor break and i'm pleased once again to be able to talk about masterclass who lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft there are many wonderful music courses, and I've talked in past episodes about courses by Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Tom Morello, Itzhak Perlman, Danny Elfman. There's Christina Aguilera teaching singing. There's Timbaland teaching producing and beat making. This time, I actually wanted to look at Ron Howard Teaches Directing, because there are so many skills that overlap between directing a film and creating a successful musical arrangement and recording. And this course has multiple lectures on collaborating on coaching actors, which is very much like getting musicians to play the parts the way you want them played, on editing, and of course, sound design and music and scoring, which are directly relevant to your musical endeavors. Ron Howard, as you would expect, is captivating to listen to. These are beautifully shot. They include accompanying course materials. There's input from other people who are taking the course. And this is just one of the courses that you'll get with a masterclass all-access pass, a great investment during this time of lockdown. And a wonderful thing you can give as a gift for someone else who's feeling very stir-crazy. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a Nakedly Examined Music listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Let's get the second song out here. We can always circle back to here, but I want to... I should say there's so much. It's a double album. It's quite eclectic stylistically. Not all the songs are this artsy or in odd time signatures. But of course, this is what I'm attracted to. And you know, I thought we, maybe we'd only have one song from Jack Hughes and the quartet involved. But the, what, five releases that you have with those guys are so varied themselves. I mean, there's one that's just a 22-minute long jam with another band. There's one that has a lot of spoken word stuff on it. 
this first one, Illuminated, is the closest to straight-up traditional jazz, but it seems like the playing is pretty conservative. They're soloing, but it's not, I think, often when rock people think of jazz, it's like, okay, it's not so much the change in style and we're going to use that instrumentation and you know upright bass and swing time more often than not and things. It's, we're going to overplay. <laughs> So the third song we're going to get back to is going to have Brahms Blues from Illuminated is going to have more of that. Actually, let's hear first, though, Class War and Sex War from the, I guess, last recorded EP, A Thesis on the Ballad, 2015. So this seems like a transition point. This barely sounds like the quartet. This sounds more like your new solo album. The context for three of the albums, the ones with spoken word or poetry on them anyway, let's take Thesis on the Ballad. So Kelvin Kokorum is a poet. He's a published poet fantastic guy and I went to a, a reading of his in Canterbury was kind of blown away by what he did and we ended up having a chat and I talked to him about what I did and he sent me a book of poems and sort of said well maybe we, you could do something with one of these and they lied around on my piano for months and then one day I just sort of picked them up and it sort of fell open at this set of six poems called a thesis on the ballad and I wrote all six songs all six settings in a couple of hours on this afternoon you know so again it was this thing where suddenly something clicks in me and the music just starts coming out I mean and I'm not really controlling it too much but you're right that this was a sort of sense where I was writing songs and even though the structures are pretty unconventional, the thing was, you know, the voice is the, the focus and telling a story and everything else is set around the voice, you know. For the quartet, this was a quite a, an unusual venture. We shall all be made to pay one day Lying on the snowy bed of silk To fiddle music in the wooden ceasing unceasing red and grinning little musgrave returns on and on with lambkin a blood dark night away boys away to island and Thank you. 
take it with some of the other quartet stuff it might have been more of a a normal here's the chords everybody do their own part but this sounds like you wrote the piano part and delivered it to him you know yeah he's furiously sight reading that part oh okay (laughs) so you're still using the jazz approach of this is first take and and you're all playing together oh yeah yeah yeah, okay it was very much done like that yeah it was a little surprising to hear you know we should all be made to pay one day lying on the snowy bed of silk to fiddle music in the wood unceasing like i didn't hear that coming out of your voice. So that's comforting in a way to know that this is a pre-existent piece of poetry. Yeah. So again, a kind of a weird structure here that you've got, you know, this beginning that's structured around that piano part. And then you have halfway through the song, it switches to this finger picking guitar thing. I was thinking Pink Floyd's brain damage, something like that, you know, but it's more, it's not that you're taking that. It's just that there's a common folk source material, except that you're playing it with this on electric with a lot of tremolo. Can you say something about how the, the arrangement of this evolved? It's very minimalist for the quartet here. Well, I guess there is this sort of crosstalk these days between sort of modern British jazz, these young guys that come out of like the jazz courses at the Academy and the Guildhall and stuff, and the kind of music they play. They will do covers of radio hit songs and stuff like that. And then there's also the more recent radio hit music as well, and the kind of guitar tones and stuff that they use. And there's a very interesting crosstalk between the sort of alt rock fraternity, if you like, and the jazz heads, you know. And for me, that's interesting as a guitar player, because as a guitar player, to play jazz, you're really stretched. 
I think. You know, it's not guitar-friendly music. So trying to find an idiom that works within uh, where, you know, upright bass and kind of filigree drums sort of work together with guitar. It takes a bit of care, you know, to get it to sound convincing. Well, in this, I mean, the only thing that makes it sound really definitely like the quartet is, so it's Leon Donin on the bass, the upright, I assume, or is it electric fretless? No, he's uh, playing upright bass, yeah. But the piano part, I mean, this could come straight from the Tony Banks songbook. Like, this tonality that you're playing, as it progresses through, do you even know what the scales are? Like, oh, of course, that's the Phrygian scale going up or what? Okay. No, I, I, I never <laughs> learned all that stuff, you know, even when I was at university. I, I kind of just couldn't think about stuff like that. I can hear it. Do you know I mean, I can hear there's a tonality that I want to have everything working in that tonality. But I never try and name it. I think that sort of <laughs> takes the, the joy out of it in a way. But, and then a bit into the verse that it's not just all straight up, that you're actually, it's not just scales, it's you're skipping back down, that there's a little bit of added complexity to that. Absolutely, yeah. Where was your brain when you're doing that? <laughs> what was determining? Interesting question, but it's all very intuitive, do you know what I mean? And all very much based. I guess, again, having the set, the poem right there, do you know what I mean? Like you say, the poem's got this slightly strange, as all of the poems have this slightly strange reference to a sort of folk poetry, I suppose, almost like a sort of medieval, a sort of romance of uh, 15th century love poems or something like that, which is one of the things that appealed to me about it. And so I'm flirting a bit with this sort of folk styling, but also with a much more advanced kind of harmonic thing, you know. But the way that this melody works, I think you could probably reharmonize it and turn it into like a song by Fairport Convention or something like that. Yeah, let me play in particular a spot, Away Boys, Away to Ireland in the, the Hebrides. Let me... Away Boys, Away to Ireland and the Yeah, that's a very kind of choreographed section, you know, that we always mess up when we're playing it live (laughs) with everybody, you know, to get you into the next bit. Which I can't help. One of my favorite bands, I have to say, is XTC. I have a big wall. And this is, you know, sounds very much like late Andrew Partridge, you know, the kind of, but I'm sure it's just a matter of exploring the same when you're getting these Thelonious Monk sort of harmonies in your head of what you end up doing with melodies. You know, Andy's writing has, to me, got a beautiful kind of English rural aspect to it, you know, and certainly I, that's probably a very unconscious but a very important influence in the way this sounds. I mean, when you're writing a melody like that, is that, again, are those harmonies in your head or because you're writing the piano down on a sheet in front of you as you come up with these these lines, are you also doing that with the vocal and then singing it or is it still the natural singing instinct? What I seem to remember when I wrote this song, because I, like I said, I wrote all six songs very quickly. And I think I wrote on the poem itself sort of thing. I wrote like piano arpeggios. So I knew it had to be this sort of, you know, thing, do you know what I mean? And I knew there had to be a transition and then it needed to get into this much more calm guitar based thing, sort of more minimalist kind of texture. And I sort of filled in the notes a bit later, I think. And that melody, I kind of improvised it a bunch of times and it, and it eventually ended up as what it is on the, on the recording, you know. But it took me a while to actually nail that one down. I mean, I understand with that, away to Ireland, you're being Elton John essentially here. You have the Bernie Taupin lyrics in front of you and you're coming up with something out of your heart here. I understand with the soaring part, but what made you think, oh, I need a calm part now for to the roots of narrative in rock, ice, and fire before the saga of riches crashed where the mind might lodge at zero. Like, I'm not sure what tone that's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just got this sort of sense of a sort of northern sea landscape kind of thing, you know. 
But I think that line, whether my mind might rest at zero, and I kind of love that word zero, and I just keep repeating that, you know, zero, and it kind of fades out with the guitar arpeggio kind of swirling into the delays and the, and the tremolo effect and stuff. That just sort of evolved. When you're thinking about working with jazz musicians, you need to build in an area where people can not exactly improvise, but where it's not clear where you're going to end, <laughs> you know, so that it just gets extended. And that was one of those sections. You've got a little shaker in here, but you even resist at the end of the song. It seems like, you know, there's some energy there. Why no percussion or bringing the full drum kit or what was your thinking there in arranging this? It didn't feel right somehow in, in a lot of the other. I mean, that's the second song. Uh, An Expanse of Water. Exactly right. So that's got me playing the sort of suitcases as, as a sort of overdub. That I toyed with putting drums on. But I thought, no, I want to keep this, again, to a, a sort of limited selection of instruments. So it'll be piano, double bass, guitar and voice you know, and very light percussion, but no drums as such. So the percussion is all overdubs. Yeah. So when, once I put down the guitar, piano and bass stuff that we did and guide vocals, I then spent a lot of time tweaking the vocals and doing what rock people do, you know, like taking bloody ages over the vocals, basically, to get them just right. I don't like that jazz thing of... Um, I mean, I think it can work with instrumentalists, but with vocals, to me, on a recording, they have to be right. So you can't have some slightly out tune bit. I did spend a lot of time on the vocals and then just a bit of light percussion in places just to kind of give it a little focus. You know? Well, that does make sense because I noticed the percussion is very locked in when it's in there. But while it's playing, like the piano kind of is wandering a little off the beat some of the time. Like it's not like you in Pro Tools or whatever lined everything up. You're keeping the organic character of the performance. That's important, I think, yeah. And were you using the tremolo effect and the other things as another way in post to add energy and add, okay, this section is getting a little repetitive. Let's have the guitar. It seems like the tremolo more so actually in, in the Brahms blues they were about to play. I'm noticing that, but it seems like that's maybe one of your tools of let's crank up the effects a little bit here, you know, use that as a dynamic effect. I think on this song, it was, I recorded the guitar with the tremolo on it, sort of in the room. as it, So it's not like an effect that's added afterwards. You know? I guess it probably would have been more in sync because that is one of the things that in parts of it, I felt like the tremolo is beating, like it's not even meant to be. It's not like you timed it out with what the BPM of the song is. Yeah, I always like the tremolo to sort of be like, not contradicting, you know, but at some sort of variance with the beat sort of thing. Well, let's get that third song out there since I can't help myself referring to it. Brahms Blues. So we're going back to the first quartet album, 2006, Illuminated. But this band had been together already. I thought I read somewhere that it, 2000 is when you originally got it going. Is that right? Or Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess Sam and I started working together kind of around that time when my daughter went to university. So I'm just trying to think that would be, yeah, 2000 would be about right. Yeah. So this was a seasoned, seasoned band by this point. Exactly. There was this little club that opened up in Canterbury, which was just a godsend, you know, because I think with jazz, it really is all about playing to an audience and the musicians having an environment to play in. You, you can't just do it like a rock band where you can, you know, do a lot of stuff in the studio and so on. It's got to be in relationship with an audience or something. So we worked quite a lot in this club and we were awful to begin with, like really terrible. But it gradually evolved. And uh, after a while, I since I think I sent a couple of demos to my friend Chris Hughes, and Chris actually produced Dance All Days and Points on the Curve, which was a Wang Chung album back in 83. And he loved it. And he has a little label called Helium, where he puts out whimsical stuff and some also slightly more serious stuff as well. So he said, yeah, come down to Bath, which was where he lives, work in the studio with him, 
and do an album. So that's kind of what we did. So the Brahms Blues and everything on Illuminated was very much the band set up in a room, all playing together simultaneously, no overdubs.
definite groove piece, like those initial piano chords. Was this a group composition? Did you have the basic elements in place and farm them out to the group? It's called Brahms Blues because it's actually based on a Brahms intermezzo. So I think it's like Opus 116, number two. Sam's piano part is playing the Brahms piece. But when I heard the Brahms piece being played, because it's played, that's sort of written in, like in four, I think, you know. But the way pianists play it, classical pianists play it with what they call rubato. So they're always stretching the time. And But if you start counting it, like it's a prog piece, then it's kind of in seven, is how I was counting it. And then there's a piece by Miles Davis, which pieces, I think it's on Big Fun, which has basically got this sort of like loop type feel in the drums. And I, for some reason, I heard this Brahms piece with the Miles piece and wrote the piece around what I was hearing in my head. Yeah, let's talk about the structure a little bit here. So you got that initial Brahms hook and it was just, okay, you're hearing this and you're picturing some kind of funky beat over it. So is that the main... the You know, the bass line, basically, that you're doubling for part of it. The bass line sort of just got invented. Well, I suppose, you know, when you've grown up listening to progressive rock <laughs> as a teenager, then you come up with those bass lines pretty easily. You know? Yeah, cool bass line. The Brahms piece, sort of basically mimicking the feel of the Miles piece. When I say no overdubs, I realize that's not strictly true because there's that sort of cowbell type, well, not like a clave thing, like stick that's got delay on it and stuff that we overdubbed and made very loud on the record because when we were listening to the Miles track, the clave is like insanely loud on it. <laughs> so we just sort of copied that as well. Yeah, in fact, I thought it was multiple percussion things because I can hear at some point this, I guess, this metallic percussion and there sounds like there's also a tambourine and the two kind of come apart at some spots. Has that track got some clapping on it as well? Yes, yes. For one of the verses, it's very clap-oriented and the claps get loud and delayed and like that's exactly what I was talking about in terms of Okay, we're mixing. This part is getting a little long. Turn up the delay there. Like, you know, fill it with something. Absolutely. Well, that was, again, Chris and I listening to these Miles tracks and just <laughs> kind of thinking, like, God, what's going on here? Do you know what I mean? With their, you know, obviously, Tia Machero would push things up in the mix. And, you know, because they're, you know, they're like 16, 17 minute tracks and stuff, you know. So yeah, you are looking to emphasize certain things and bring out certain colors. So that's all part of it. So that Big Fun is one of the ones following On the Corner, right? This is one of the 70s ones? Yeah, it is, yeah. I spent a lot of time with On the Corner being one of that, I think when it came out, people did not like it. Like it wasn't Bitches Brew, it was much more straightforward, you know, a funk groove thing with like four percussionists seemingly, I, if I remember correctly, just banging away throughout the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, nuts. but great, you know, absolutely great. You know, I, I really grew to love those Miles Electric albums, you know, and what he was doing and just throwing a lot of ingredients into the pot to use an, a, an analogy that he would probably appreciate, you know. I feel like once synthesizer sounds in the 80s got kind of offensive, I'm so glad Herbie Hancock, for instance, survived after the 80s so that he could then put out the glorious, you know, neoclassic sound of his of the 90s to the present and, you know, wish we'd gotten some of that out of Miles. We get a little bit toward the end of his life, but it's still, you know, 1988 synth guitar and whatever. And the 80s was a tough time for anybody apart from 80s bands, <laughs> and even they struggled. I was pleasantly surprised in listening back to, I think that you had some of the more tasteful production of the era. There's not like a lot of, for instance, horrible synth brass, <laughs> which is like one of the sounds that does not age. That is exactly what I'm talking about. 
No, we did have a lot of uh, very sort of sloshy snare drums on things, which these days sort of irritates me quite a lot. But, you know, hey, that was the thing, you know. <laughs> but that's so fun that, that you got to do then this thing also with Chris, who is responsible for some of that sploshing. Not the height of your sploshing, but the early sploshing. Well, snare drum all over my songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he atoned for his sins. So I was wondering about when I hear something like To Live in Die in L.A. soundtrack, and some of that is straight instrumental, you know, you often think of the, oh, it's the producer, it's Chris Hughes or whoever who's responsible for the actual programming. Maybe you even have like four different programmers listed in the credits. But if you're doing instrumentals and it's still credited to you, you know, was it you, you know, using your composition stuff behind the keyboard, actually programming that mess back in the day? Yeah, To Live and Die in LA was all me and Nick. We okay. had no producer for that album. We had an engineer, a great engineer called David Motion who got some great sounds, that very kind of chunky bass sound. And he made the Lindrum that we were using, you know, sound very kind of real. And the drums on that record sound great, I think. But the programming was all uh, me and Nick. Well, I want to make sure to throw something like Brahms Blues into here to, to show off your guitar soloing. And, you know, people probably do not expect that. <laughs> Although, I don't know, I haven't seen a, a in, in a current Wang Chung show, do you open up and have more guitar soloing? And like I talked to the guy from Nick from Cutting Crew, they do, I Died in Your Arms Tonight is like an eight-minute thing now <laughs> with, with extensive soloing. Have, have, have you had similar expansions of your old tunes? Very much so, very okay. much so. You know, not crazy, but like, for instance, Fire in the Twilight, you know, the song that we did for The Breakfast Club, we do that sort of with this sort of stretched out kind of section in the middle where the chords go all very kind of Pink Floyd and, uh, you know, and I do some attempt sort of jazzy guitar solo. Let me play the, what I called the B section, but it's actually quite short from Brahms Blues. Yeah, so this ends up just being a fairly short turnaround. You know, this is less than 30 seconds, and then it comes out in a very important part of the song later as a, as a reprise. But with this extended sort of giant stepsy, I don't know, kind of long melody, do you want to say, you know, how did this exist compared to the rest of it? I guess it was just a sense of wanting a transition, you know, mm-hmm. so that it didn't just become the drum loop and the Brahms thing. Do you know what I mean? That sort of yeah, I'm not quite sure where I was getting that from. Sort of King Crimson or something. I don't know. It's yes, that that sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Where it's a yeah, sort of heavy guitars and and again, it just goes into a straight four for a while. But the, obviously, the phrasing is across the beat and stuff. I just wanted this sort of like a bit of a release of the tension, actually, because the Brahms Blues again is one of these tracks that just the rhythm just sort of like hangs in the air. Do you know what I mean? It's not like progressing all the time. So this was a, a way of kind of shifting a bit of ground and moving a bit of air. Well, just by calling it blues, you're sort of highlighting that there is a transition. It's not just, you know, funk. It's not on the corner, which really is, I think, one chord for 20 minutes. <laughs> that it's progressing, but it's slowly progressing. And so that you have these end points of the dun, 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 which has a strangely, like, repeats then a measure later. Like, and sometimes you're not all doing it together. Yeah. Was some of that just the vagaries of the performance or was that actually all planned? I think it was planned, actually, yeah. And, and I started doing that a lot on the new solo album, you know, so Wistful Beach, to go back to that, the transitions out of the bit with no time signature into the 6-4 sections are very hard to count. And I deliberately made it like that so that it always comes in where you don't expect it. You know? And I kind of like that, on, especially on recordings where you're going to listen to it hopefully a few times you know, so that it's always just a surprise. Well, speaking of unexpected, so yes, this part at, 541, let me just play a little bit of that to remind folks. 
So everything is dissolving. I mean, this sounds like you had the band performance and then later you just like, let me write a C section, you know, it's something to, to put in and then I'll crank the band back up later. Like this, was this you against a violin, just a completely separate entity that got shoved in here? Yeah, we did that actually. I know that we did do some post-production mm-hmm. on the album generally, you know, because one of the things that sort of pissed me off about jazz albums is that they'll say with pride, you know, there were no overdubs on this record. It's like, well, why not? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's more interesting. There was nothing you could have improved. You really like every single note and that was maximally interesting. Yeah, we were most definitely interested in putting overdubs on it. I think you know, there, there is this sort of slightly sort of holier than thou sense about some jazz recordings. Recordings for me are like making movies. Do you know what I mean? It's not like the theater where you just, it's all performance and you get one shot and you have to get it right. It's like making a movie. So you light it and you, set the scene and you keep doing it until you get it how you want it. You know? <laughs> this violin player, this is not just your pianist switching to violin or something. No, we, we had an actual, we had a violin <laughs> player. Because again, I was working with a guy called Raven, who was in this, this band, uh, Siddhartha, Raven Bush. And he sort of did some work with us in Canterbury. And uh, for some reason, he couldn't do the session. So we used another guy who was based down in Bath. But yeah, the violin I guess I was sort of quite influenced uh, in my thinking with that, with the Mahavishnu Orchestra and uh, the way McLaughlin would solo with that violin sound. I don't know. Your song's only eight and a half minutes long. If you're going to push to be like McLaughlin, you got to yeah. <laughs> crank it up to 20. <laughs> <laughs> to close out here, we're going to introduce one of the more recent, although it's a rearrangement of an old song, Wang Chung Things. Do you want to just say a little about how these different elements in your career have been balanced. You said you were teaching a while. I mean, I don't even know what you were doing in the 90s. Were you producing people at that point? Essentially, I was working, producing other other artists, I suppose. And I also did an album with Tony Bank. Yes, yes. Strictly Inc. Strictly Inc. Yeah, so that, I did that record. I prefer it, actually, to the Calling All Stations, the actual Genesis album. You know, okay. it's sort of <laughs> a parallel track. But yeah, that's definitely some of his best work. Yeah, it, it was a good album to work on, you know, and I was a huge Genesis fan when I was a kid, you know, the sort of uh, Peter Gabriel Genesis stuff, you know, Foxtrot, Selling England by the Pound, those records were very, very important records for me. So uh, working with Tony was overawing uh, in the beginning, you know, and I, I was always sort of saying to him, you know, why don't you get the, because his roadies were sort of saying, you know, we've got all the old Mellotrons, all the gears in the barn, you know, we could put it in the studio and you could use that if you wanted, you know. And Tony would be like, no, 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 we're just going to use this sampler. You know, like, <laughs> and he was never interested in getting the old gear out of the barn, you know. And I think because for him it was just a traumatic experience having to play those instruments that had to be literally rebuilt every night in order for him to play Watcher of the Skies and stuff. So he was much happier with his nice Yamaha keyboard with Mellotron samples on it. And then at the same time as the quartet, you've got an album and a half of new Wang Chung things. Were those to sort of support the current tours or was there actual like, we have more creative juices that we need to exert together? Like, Are you talking about like orchestrography, the orchestral record that we did? I guess I'm still at this point talking about the Abducted from the 80s 2010 EP and the, the Taser 2012 LP. You know, what was the motivation behind even doing those? I guess that was Nick and I, having not worked together as Wang Chung for many years, was sort of involved in this sort of business deal around our publishing, which meant that we hung out a lot more. And he was like, well, why don't we, you know, just do some playing? And uh, simultaneously, we got an offer to do a, a tour, a sort of 80s type tour in the States, which we did. And both really enjoyed it. But I got this very strong sense of like, when you're touring, you should have something to sell <laughs> and not 
a profit, but just so that people have got a memento of the occasion in a sense. So we started to work on this album, which essentially mopped, for me anyway, mopped up a whole load of songs that were lying around. And I sort of directed them in the sort of Wang Chung, what's an 80s record? It's drum machines, it's synthesizers, and it's uh, guitars. Uh, so the Taser Up is very much geared up around that sense. You know? Yeah, I just wasn't sure. You know, some bands... It's not a coincidence that when their commercial height fades, then they stop producing music because it's sort of driven by, well, we're getting a lot of money to do this. And, you know, there's a, there's an audience expectation. And, you know, that's why, the, as opposed to the quartet, which is obviously purely just something that is out of your soul that you're wanting to do this, even if nobody is going to hear this. So just balancing those two things, I guess that's just what one needs to do to keep busy in, in the music industry at this point. I mean, I must say, I always remember when I was a pop star, <laughs> I used to go to this really amazing hair salon in Los Angeles. It's a ridiculous story, really. But I just remember there was an English girl who worked in there. And I remember her saying to me, like, yeah, it never occurred to me that I would make money out of hairdressing. You know, I just did it because I loved it. And I kind of thought, I feel exactly the same about music. When I was a kid, it never occurred to me that you had to make money out of it. You know? I mean, I've just been very, very fortunate that, that I have made money out of it. But I guess I've never really done things for money. I, I suppose with the possible exception of the fork in the road that came up with everybody have fun tonight. It's like, you've got to have a hit record or you're just going to get dropped. You know, So I faced you know, what I had to face for that. But I think certainly this solo record came out of just music that was flowing through me. If you like. and I hope that doesn't sound too pretentious, do you know what I mean? But it wasn't like I sort of thought, oh, i got a bit of spare time, I'm going to write this album. It just started happening. And it was like keeping up with the ideas and keeping up with recording them, and, you know, not just sort of thinking, oh, I'll just watch television or something. Not that I have a television, but do you know what I mean? It, it was just sticking with the inspiration as it was hitting me and trying to write it down quickly enough to capture it. Well, in a double album, I thought since, you know, you haven't had a lot of song-like stuff for quite a few years that this was material that had built up over years, but it sounds like most of this was written in a rush before the actual album recording. But it certainly was, yeah. A lot of the songs were written in a sort of three-month period at the beginning of 2018. But I think the build-up probably started when I was about 12 and heard the White Album, actually. I thought, <laughs> that's the album I want to make. And I've sort of been going around the houses ever since, trying to figure out how to do that. And I think Trimatif has finally got that album out of my system that I sort of dreamed of when I was a kid. Very nice. Well, we're going to close here. Talk a little about this orchestography project. So we're going to take the old songs. Some of them, I hear you put some strings at the beginning, but then it still has a beat and plays Everybody Has Fun Tonight, and, you know, in a fairly recognizable way. But I wanted to pick one here, so To Live and Die in L.A., which was still a hit back in the day, but that this is a radically different version. Yes. Did you write out the arrangements yourself? Did you work with a, you know, an orchestrator? We work with an orchestrator. Essentially, the way it works is 80s band, record company with guy with money who likes 80s bands, approaches us and says, would we be interested in doing an orchestral album? We say, well, actually, he wanted to do just two dance days and everybody have fun tonight. And I said, I'm not interested in doing that, but I am interested in an album. And I was a bit doubtful about it at first because I thought, I don't want it to be cheesy. Anyway, I thought, yes, just say yes. Stop being an idiot. So I said yes. And Nick kind of talked me into it as well. So To Live and Die in L.A., when we were playing it live, we started doing it. We play the song as it is on the, in the 80s version up to the final chorus. And at the final chorus, we would slow it right down and sort of play it as a ballad. Because I think a lot of people think that To Live and Die in LA, the title track, is a ballad. But in fact, it's really a sort of medium rock tuning. But the chorus has got this beautiful melody and some lovely chords. 
I wanted to sort of get the expression out of that a little bit more by dropping the tempo. So when it came to recording the orchestral version, we'd already been playing the song live in that kind of form, you know. And I guess orchestrally, because there's that sort of little but, but sort of little riff, which on the 80s version is a piano, well, it's a sort of piano overdubbed with a sort of flute type sound, a sort of emulator flute, I think it was, you know. But I wanted to capture that in the orchestral version and I sort of heard that, you know, how Stravinsky or somebody like that might score it for a sort of, um, you know, flutes and a bit of bass clarinet and stuff like that. So I was always trying to push the orchestrations towards more towards Stravinsky and away from John Williams, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And I think we succeeded in that in certain tracks, like uh, Overwhelming Feeling, I think we did a pretty good job on. You know? And To Live and Die in LA, I would have liked to have spent a bit more time trying to really get to work as a sort of orchestral thing. But the nature of the project was we just had to get it done. We sort of flirt with it rather than achieve quite what I wanted. But it's close. Well, it's nice that you got to do like the world in which we live, which was already like an epic end of album tune and amp it up more epic and put on timpani and whatever. That was cool. But again, that's another track that was like the last thing we did. And to be honest with you, it's kind of half finished that song. You know, we, we never got to sort of put on the samples and stuff that I would have liked to have done. But in a way, it's fine. You know, with, with that project, it really was fast. There was a lot of pressure to get it done because the record company, you know, had, well, they were paying for it all. So they wanted it, uh, something they could put out as quickly as possible. And I'm glad that we got it done quickly because Nick and I were very capable of taking, you know, two years over something. So that took like a, just a, sort of three or four months and you know, it was good to do it that way. So I guess somebody had asked Paul McCartney, do you like, you know, whipping an album out fast, not overthinking it, or do you like going in with a producer who's going to fuss over every little thing? And he's like, both, both is fine. You know, so that seems to be what I'm hearing that, you know, it's nice to be in these high production situations where you're restricted, but also nice to fritter away three years. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, I guess with the, you know, like To Live and Die in LA, that album, you know, we recorded all the soundtrack stuff in a week. So we had to work really fast on that. And I think that was good for us as well, you know. And then, uh, you know, the quartet albums are usually recorded in a few days, you know, because it's all very much performance based. Right. Recorded in a few days, but worked up over. Yeah. Post production would be, you know, a few more days, but not a lot of time. Okay. Certainly not months. This is not gigs and gigs of rehearsal before you're getting into them, like before Illuminated, had you played all those songs with those guys for years? (laughs) (laughs) A couple of years, I guess. Yeah, but it was all very much, we sort of knew how to do it, um, set the mics up in the room, count it in, play it, uh, did a few takes. I don't know whether we edited between takes, I can't remember, but uh, I think actually we chose a take that we liked and then sort of worked on that with, with the overdubs. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Pleasure talking to you. It's been great. I really enjoyed talking about it in depth. All right, so here's To Live and Die in L.A. Turn the light, I feel that God is not in heaven in the 
Thanks so much to Jack. 
You know, despite their big hit that is perhaps very much associated with 80s excess and the funny name of the band, I always liked Wang Chung. That mosaic album that the big hits are off of is a really nice, clean, warm arrangement. And Jack has classical training, just a great sense of melody, great sense of harmony. You might want to revisit that band. And it was so good to hear to have an excuse to dive in and to show you all some of the other cool things that Jack is into. You can learn more at jackhughes.com. My next episode will be with Rick Kemp, who will be the second member of Steel Eye Span that I'll have on the show. Steel Eye Span does rocked up versions of traditional English texts, but we'll be talking about his originals, some folky stuff. He's a very McCartney-esque melodic bass player. And looking forward to a few episodes, I most recently got to talk to Jim Petervik, who has written more hit songs than anybody I've ever had on this podcast, including Eye of the Tiger, Vehicle, which you might not recognize that name, but you definitely know the song if you want to look it up by Ides of March. He's written with Brian Wilson with 38 Special. You can get all of these episodes, of course, at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And I hope if you're listening to this on the Partially Examined Life feed, you will go subscribe specifically to this podcast, and it would really help me out if you could leave a rating or review. And if you really want to help me out, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to support the podcast. You'll get my ad-free feed. Finally, I have some news regarding my own music. I've been a little bit active. Go to marklint.bandcamp.com. You will now see six albums up there. They're the two that have been there for a while. There's the three New People albums, which have not been posted under my name before. And I newly put together one of songs from the 90s up to about 2015 called The Cheese Stands Alone. Again, that's marklint.bandcamp.com. It's a lot of fun. I think you will probably enjoy it. But mostly, I hope you keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Meyer signing off.